If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Iowa to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. This is episode 142 of the podcast. If you're new to the show, I want to welcome you. Highway to Health is your place for trusted health guidance and support. Whether you're looking to improve your health or just seeking ways to stay well, we're here for you. This growing community is on a mission to improve our state of being and experience together on the planet. And if you love the conversations and insight you get here, consider becoming a health amplifier today. You can support the show for as little as the price of a cup of coffee by going to patreon.com forward slash highway to health. Your support is more helpful than you can imagine. I'm so excited to have Dr. Jeff Crippen back on the show today. We got the opportunity to record a couple of episodes last season. So if you like what you hear in this conversation, and this is your first time listening to him, go back and check out our previous conversations. I hit him up in the fall uh, to get his take on a podcast I listened to about a meat-only diet being discussed uh, that we reference here at the beginning of the episode, and I'll I'll, I'll include the, ep- the the podcast episode we're referring to in the show notes. There was something curious about how the guest uh, on on this particular podcast episode claimed to have recovered from years of autoimmune challenges, and went to great lengths to explain the research and science behind why it freed his system of food-related challenges. It, it made me question a lot, which I appreciate, but in the end, I also got the sense that there were still some unresolved challenges. So I figured Jeff would have some explanation uh, for why a monofood diet might improve, at least initially, a number of health challenges. And this led to some correspondence about what types of foods are most responsible for inflammatory responses, autoimmune diseases, uh, gut processing challenges, and age-related disorders. It also opened up a bigger discussion about allergies and vegetarianism, blood tests, cholesterol numbers, triglycerides, the role of fiber, and the proper amount of sodium we should be taking in, as well as the best oils to switch to for optimizing our health. Essentially, all the basics, and it's always my aim to simplify. I've come to identify over the past 26 years of my work in integrative health that what most people are seeking is just to improve their energy and vitality to do more of what they love. I hope this episode helps you get more organized to experience just this. Here's my conversation with Dr. Jeff Crippen. The thing, the thing that balances out the nutrition, because you could study an infinite amount and still not know anything, like yeah. relatively thin nutrition, because there's so many conflicting things. The only balance I find for it that really makes a lot of sense for me is seeing patients, right? Because you need that constant feedback of right. like what's actually true versus what's just something written in a book or written in a study. Because otherwise, you just read two conflicting studies, and it's just utter confusion. And that was kind of, 
you know, my beginning as a patient. We may have touched on that a little bit last time. Well, that's, like, let's, let's start good. there because okay, that's, that, that's ex- the, the reason that I, I wanted to talk to you is because I, like I was saying, I, I, I've had some background in nutrition, but I, but I haven't had the experiential, you know, watching the patterns over and over again with, with patients the way that you have. So when I, when I listened to this podcast episode, which I share, you know, shared with you, that just kind of, more than anything, it was like, there's, there's some really good information in here, but there's also yeah. some stuff that feels a little convoluted to me. And yeah. I, I know with, with diets in general, there's no one size fits all, yeah. but, but when it, when it comes down to like, I think people, people who are dealing with chronic uh, illness of some sort, as, as you know, you were with headaches, I, people will, will try just about anything and throw just about anything at it to see what works. And this guy is, you know, had in this podcast basically had all sorts of autoimmune things going on and shifted to a meat only diet and had success for a period of time, you know, so yeah. that's that. And, and so maybe we can start with that. Like, I, I, I think one of the, one of the big things that can be a tester, right. Is, is to, is to kind of try things out with a with a more kind of mono food diet. Yeah. So the question, yeah. So, so he, he did a carnivore diet. So I think let's touch on that idea because okay, that's kind okay. of a trendy yeah. version and we'll get into the, and we'll kind of use that as a bridge into the mono food if that works. And like, so that, that carnivore diet is just the idea of basically eat meat, nothing but meat yeah. and put a piece of, piece of steak in your Twitter handle, right. To indicate <laughs> kind of where you are on that. It's right, kind right. of like kind of the sign on that. Um, and so the the first question is so we we we've gotten into a couple of things there. The first question is, you know, how do you sort through the noise on nutrition? And that's what we're going to hopefully help you guys with today. And that's yeah. kind of something we're going to talk around. And you're sharing a little bit of your experience on there. My experience was as a patient started getting really bad headaches, as we talked about on previous episodes. And then you realize have the idea like, hey, what I eat could affect my body. Like, oh, if I put, you know corn oil in the car maybe it won't run quite as well right right as opposed to if you put gasoline so then you try to figure out okay so diet matters then what the heck to eat and yeah. as we start reading one thing and reading something else and then you kind of go down a bunch of rabbit holes and yeah. hopefully you find some right answers as you go through it so um so with the mono food diet so so with any diet it's always compared to what yeah. right so i think that's the first thing so if somebody cuts out a diet that's like the standard American diet, abbreviated SAD, and it's like sugary drinks from coffee giant A and fast food and, you know, box food off the shelf. And they just go to something that's purely in, 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 the, in the carnivore diet, primarily, you know, qual- quality protein as a general rule. Yeah. You know, some animal protein and maybe some healthy fats, maybe not, depending on whether it's grain-fed or pastured ways or grass-fed. You kind of do get a good there and there's some there's certainly a bunch of there's some b vitamins in meat there's some there's some quality minerals in meat including iron so there's definitely a, a, a quite a bit of nutrients in it but i you know my thought on the carnivore and i've had a couple patients done it not a huge amount but some have done it and i've seen some blood work and i haven't been super impressed overall with the blood work mm-hmm. um but again it's always compared to what um but you end up with a situation of the true way to eat carnivore, if we look back some of our ancestors, you know, if we look at the um, the Inuit up in Alaska, which would eat a diet that was 90, 85, 90, 95% animal products, now they would include some some fish as well, um, they were always eating head to tail. Mm, yeah, Meaning yeah. 
the importance of organ meat. And, you know, when we look at, you know, livers, and, and they talk about on the podcast, the incredible nutrient rich of liver, and he calls oysters the liver of the sea. And, you know, the richest source of vitamin C, we think of broccoli, we think of lemons, limes, oranges, right, which are all great sources of vitamin C. From an animal product, the richest source is adrenal gland because it's, vitamin C is really important for our stress response. So if you start really looking through it, um, there's a there's a benefit to head to tail, and I'm open to that as an idea, and I'm open yeah. to the idea that some people could be quite well on it. Um, so can you get better on a monofood diet? Absolutely. And what are some of the benefits of it? Well, it's what you're cutting out, yeah. right? The biggest yeah. benefit is what you're eliminating. Um, and you know we might get into some inflammatory foods and those ideas, but some of the foremost common ones um, would be gluten, soy, uh, dairy, and um, corn. Those would be the four most common inflammatory foods. And then sugar would kind of um, be another kind of less less inflammatory food, but more just kind of a toxic food, yeah. a poison food. So with a carnivore diet, you're cutting out all four of the most common types of inflammatory foods. Yeah, gotcha. And you're cutting out all sugars. So you've written a lot of benefit that way. And and so 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 with with I mean I'm, this is one of the things I, I really was I think yeah. that might have been one of the things that that triggered stuff for me was that idea of head to toe eating if you're going yeah. to be a meat eater, but the reality is that most people who decide they're going to go meat only or you know twenty twenty five years ago when Atkins became a huge thing people mm-hmm. thought they could they could eat you know hamburgers and bacon and steak and that was kind of all they needed to do. But what we find out in those situations is is that, you know, we're I mean, as, as you probably find in the blood work, there's probably that's not the that's not the good kind of fat in meat that we're probably looking for, right? Right? The, the, like the Inuits would get. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Because they were eating a lot of fish, um, so they were getting a lot of the benefit of that. Um, and uh, and then the other piece I was going to say on that, and it's not you know, I just want to balance it out with it's the same thing with vegetarians. Like in the sense of most people actually aren't vegetarian; they're carbitarians, they're sugaritarians, <laughs> exactly. they're fruititarians. Yeah. Right. So the amount of vegetarians that are actually eating a diet that's heavily bias towards vegetables as opposed to other forms of non-animal products it's a similar story yeah and but i'm laughing because i've i've I've, done, I've tried all these things you know i've i've done, <laughs> tried doing a little bit of everything to, to test things out and i and I, I i did exactly what you're talking about yeah and i you know just you know full disclosure i went vegetarian for a couple of years and i felt really good for a while and then at some point i felt like you know, there's a couple of things I felt like my body needed. And, you yeah. know, we can look at if you if you dive in, you know, if we go one level deeper on some of that stuff, you know, B12 is one of the main nutrients you get from animal products that you can't really find in vegetarian sources. And there may be some debate about can you get it? But the point is, it's not easy. Right. Right. It's very, very difficult to get it from a vegetarian diet. Maybe you can supplement or you can do some different things. But you have a you have a store in your body that lasts somewhere between a year, 18 months, maybe up to two years. So we have a certain storehouse of nutrients that mm, we, yeah. the body's really good at making things whole, depending on where we start. So there is some level of compensation for the body, but there's there's what shows up on the poster, right, or what shows up in the marketing piece, and what the reality of it. And like you're saying, and Atkins is a great example. There's you know the details of it, or the devils in the details, in the sense that there's some difference between the headline and the reality of what we need connected to it. Yeah, and and I think I think we've gotten to a point with with diets where we're we're using the diets in a way for yeah. some specific outcome like you know yeah. uh, the, the beach body or for something that's that that doesn't really have anything to do with 
with how well we feel. And so, you know, and and that would, that's true for like, you know, creating ketosis and for different kinds of things that we can, that we can have food do for us. And, and, and also I kind of wonder like, you know, look at, looking at some of the diets that, that are being suggested when, when people are sort of saying, well, we, we need to look at the, at the ancestry of these things. I think there's something to be said for that, because I think if you come from a specific culture, the, your, you know, your genetics probably are predispositioned to process certain kinds of, of, you know, things better. But at the same time, to, 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 to go back to thinking we need to, you know, eat like a caveman who didn't live to be probably more than 25 years old is, isn't, isn't always like the, the, the best way to think about this either, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think you bring up a couple of good points there and um, yeah, I'd say absolutely. I, I agree with that. Like there needs to be some nuance around it. And then, and I think one of the, one of the things I really want to highlight that you said and what I got is, you know, often it's us superimposing on the body, what we think the body should need. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of the other flow of listening to the body and and perceiving what the body needs and kind of asking ourselves the question, how did I feel after I had this? And how do I feel after I had that? And then being able to experiment and work with some kind of coach or practitioner to help us understand what that means. And then you you buttress that or support that with some blood work or some individualized, you know, we do muscle testing or kinesiology or some otherwise forms of analysis to say, am I on the right track here? Because mm-hmm. you put all that together, that's... I mean, that's a huge idea that you just had. If you could get people to do what you just said, which is reconnect to the body and perceive what does their body need instead of mentally top down, superimpose a diet, you must eat this way. That would do a tremendous good for, for nutrition and diet in the world because those ancient cultures that have survived and have these natural diets that yeah. we know from research, somewhere between two and 10 times the recommended daily nutrients. Like if you look at a traditional diet of the, Maasai down in Africa, the the Inuit up in Alaska, or the Maui uh, down in uh, New Zealand, they have between two and ten times the recommended daily nutrients of everything we need. Yeah. And it's a better diet than the American Dietetics, than the American Diabetes Association, than the American Heart Association, and a better diet than the um, than the you know food pyramid we have here in the United States, and the My Plate, as they renamed it. So there's an incredible wisdom in there that if we could tap into that would unlock a lot of right answers. Right. And, and what we're trying to, you know, what, what they have figured out for themselves in a lot of ways is they're matching diet to lifestyle and, and to environment and, and to environment. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and yeah, we, no, no, we have ahead. not done this well, you know, as, as, yeah. as Americans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause you know, what do you know, we started out well saying everything's unique, right? You need different foods than I do. Yeah. Right. I mean, weightlifters, they need more protein. You know, someone who's, you know, you know, women who are pregnant need more of everything, right? Menstruating women need more iron, right? People who are under stress or alcoholic or eat a lot of sugar or endurance athletes need more B vitamins, right? And we could go on and on with those individual nutrient requirements. And, you know, the idea that there's a standard amount of calories or nutrients, someone who's five foot two and 120 pounds needs versus someone who's six, four, 280, right? It's just, it's totally, it's, it's so obvious, right? We have... You have a little kid at the dinner table and you have your uncle who's four times the size of the kid. We know, well, the uncle needs more food, right? I mean, it's that basic yet from this, you know, kind of dogmatic nutrition idea. It's, you know, it's a standard 2,000, 2,500 calories, same nutrients that roughly get superimposed on everyone. 
although there's there's another piece of it for me that I'm I'm realizing is like <clears throat> I have a 20 year old, so my yeah. tw- my 20 year old can actually eat four times as much as me, or you know maybe should be eating four times as much as me. But I I try to match him sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a couple of things happen there. One is that metabolism revs when we were oh, younger, and yeah. then and then and then enzyme production is. I think the stat is it drops about it's about sixty seven percent. It drops between about age twenty five and age sixty five. Okay. So just the our digestive capacity goes down as we age as well, uh, and then and, you know and then we can look at calories and a couple other things. So there are some things as we age, and that's another example of things that that change as we go. Can can, can I pick your brain about about enzymes then? So, Please, so yeah. what what kinds of things? Because I'm, I'm guessing this is this is a big issue for all, all sorts of things. Whether people are having like some metabolic issues, or they're having um, they're struggling struggling with weight loss or thyroid issues, is 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 that something that can be uh, supplemented? Is that is that something you try to address more from a dietary perspective? When I'm I'm talking about with with age with the aging process and these things challenges that pop up. Yeah, that's a good question. My my bias is always to start with lifestyle and 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 um, lifestyle first. So, what mm. what sort of things would maximize enzyme production? Right. One is, are we eating food? Let's give extremes. Are we eating food in the car while we're on the phone, stuck in traffic, honking our horn? Yeah. Or are we sitting down? Right. Do we have a moment to you know give thanks or gratitude or prayer before yeah. we eat? Right, things that would calm the parasympathetic or relaxing part of the nervous system, kind of your wheelhouse there, and yeah. or we and when that stress overdrive system as we're doing that. So the more we can have that body in calm in the state of parasympathetic, you know, including lifestyle factors, including yeah, you know, craniosacral that's a, that's a massage. Good, yeah, that's a good reminder, though. Yeah, you know, do then we go into chewing, right? Like ideally, we should chew our food each bite between twenty-five and fifty times. Mm. And, and and if you do that, and I encourage you guys to try it if you haven't, next time you do, as you do that, you actually won't have to swallow your food. It'll happen almost automatically. If you just keep chewing, the reflexes will take over. It'll naturally happen. So why does that matter? Well, one is it breaks the food down into smaller pieces. Two is you have more saliva released from your mouth, which saliva is filled with digestive enzymes. So okay. digestion yeah. starts in the mouth. Three is as you're chewing and as that saliva is released, it's triggering digestive enzyme productions being released in the stomach, being released in the small intestine, the gallbladder to contract to help more digestion, the pancreas, gallbladder, stomach, that whole digestive complex is working together. And then one more thing we could do lifestyle is um, bitter herbs, like the idea of like eating a small salad before you eat that was bitter, mm-hmm. was kind of a traditional use of digestive bitters. And bitters stimulate um, basically gastric juices, digestive enzyme productions by the stomach. Mm. So having a little bit of something bitter as you begin to meal, as you begin your meal that stimulates the bitter receptors on the tongue can help that process. So obviously we can do that with food. We can do that with supplement. Another thing you could do is a little, you know, just a, a kind of a, a homemade or a, a home remedy for, you know, stomach acid would be some apple cider vinegar, like a tablespoon a couple times a day. Especially with food, especially with higher protein meals, um, yeah. we need we need a more acidic pH for two two things especially, and that would be protein and that would be minerals. So think iron, calcium, manganese, magnesium. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be quite helpful um, there. And there's one more thing: um, digestive enzymes, minerals. Yeah, it may have just left me, but it comes back later. So, so so while we're in, in that realm, I, I'm curious, just partly because I have a friend who just went through this. 
um, he went through oral cancer <clears throat> and had radiation yeah. um, and his doctor Gosh. suggested xylitol um, before he eats because of this, because of a challenge now with some saliva production. And I was just curious if, if you, if you know anything about that or, or I, I'm not even sure where xylitol fits into, I, I don't think it's a very harmful uh, chemical, but I, but I'm just curious if you know, if you've had any experience with xylitol. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So xylitol is a sugar alcohol, okay. right? And so kind of that would um, kind of where it fall in there. I'm not familiar with what that's doing. I have had a couple patients with, or one patient specific I'm thinking of with that. And, you know, one of the things they may be trying to recover is there's a gland called the parotid gland. Yes, I think that's, just that's inside it. inside the cheekbone. Yeah. Okay. And that's where some of that digestive enzymes and saliva is produced in the mouth. And with radiation to, you know, with radiation or cancer to the thyroid or head and neck, there could be some collateral damage or direct damage to that depending on where that is. So there are actually specific proteins you can use to help regenerate the parotid gland. Hmm. Now you have to assume there's some, some there's something left there. and there's yeah. a specific supplement. So we can get into that a little bit, but I haven't used xylitol for that effect. Yeah. I, so since, since I knew about it, because I'm in close quarters with people doing body work and face, you know, my face, yeah. a few, I, I have to have mints a lot in my office. So I just got, yeah, yeah. I, tried, I tried some xylitol mints. And yeah. when, when I first started using, you know, trying it and I was switching over from, I was trying not to use sugar-based mints and, you know, it's it, there's no there's no perfect in the mint world that I've found unless you're going to chew sure. the actual plant, <laughs> but sure, yeah. but but I, I I did feel the I could feel my mouth producing extra saliva from from xylitol, so it was in, in, interesting. Anyways, interesting. yeah, yeah, I, and I have when I have mints and when I use them, I typically I do a xylitol mint kind yeah. of in moderation. So uh, I have yeah. a company called company called Spry. I've used the pepper. That's the one I have. Yep, yep. Yeah, those are kind of the ones that I've used and. I think that could be a, a healthy alternative in, in moderation um, as a healthy, healthier sugar a sugar substitute. Yeah. So moving on from meat-based diets and vegetarian diets, which are both mono diets and, and diets of choice at this point in history, we've made decisions in the past more on what was available by season and our diets became more omnivorous. But I'm guessing that there's there's a fair amount of trial and error that has to go on when we get into the omnivorous eating habits. And there, there are some things that I saw you recommending, um, like, you know, the, the role of fiber, um, being, being one of them that there's not, not every carb is, is, is built the same and that we, we need to kind of understand the differences in, in the carb world. Yeah, that's great. So you want to start on carbs or inflammatory foods or what would be I would, they, they, they feel like they might be linked. So you can Good. start wherever you want. <laughs> Perfect, and we'll touch on both of those. So yeah, so let's let's start with so let's start with we'll go with carbs because that was the second part of your question, and that is so you know generally that that's it's off often there's like a false dichotomy. It's like carbs are bread, pasta, bagels, you know, cookies, cake, you know, right. the sweets and ice cream things like that. That's, those are carbs, refined grains, and we kind of understand that. And then there's things that are low carb or no carb, and that's kind of you know meat, chicken, fish, right, and, cer and certain vegetables. And then there's, you know, and then there's the question of what's in between, right? And the, and the answer is, you know, it's, for me, it's less about eliminating carbs and more about improving the quality of our carbs. Yeah. So generally, I already mentioned gluten is um, one of the foremost inflammatory foods. So definitely wheat is something that I recommend, you know, most all patients stay away from and 
not just from the gluten, which is the main protein in wheat and which has been hybridized and bred so it survives better. And But in addition to that, it's, um, it's sprayed, you know, liberally with glyphosate. Yeah. And then they even use glyphosate Roundup as a desiccant to dry the wheat once it's been picked. Is that right? Yeah. They're now using it as a desiccant on it as well. So it's pretty much, you know, Roundup is pretty much, you know, or glyphosate is pretty much poison. You talked about that a little bit on a recent episode, blocking yeah. mineral absorption. Yeah. Um, yeah. It also, I was just learning recently, it has a role in blocking vitamin D conversion from the sun. So making us get less vitamin D from the sun is mm. also glyphosate. So another another effect that can have. So it's more about, um, so definitely stay away from wheat. For for people, I kind of break it in for people who have a kind of a more of a maintenance diet and more of a diet where we want to, we're working on blood sugar, we're working on helping them lose weight, we're working on, you know, an inflammatory condition in the body, we're working on an improving diet and a maintenance diet, right? So just kind of big picture on that. If I look at the the maintenance diet, kind of the where, where I'll kind of get them to live is if we do some low glycemic grains a couple times a week. Mm. So what I sent to you is a, is a copy of that. So that would be things like buckwheat, quinoa, uh, sprouted grains, and then wild rice, which is different than brown rice and yep. different than white rice, and actually from the grass family. So those are the ones we would gravitate towards. And then we'd stay away from white rice, brown rice, willet, millet, excuse me, wheat, barley, and aramid. Um, okay. So those would be focusing on quality grains. And then... Um, for carbohydrates and then not necessary, but you can include some of the starchier vegetables in that a couple times a week that have carbs in it. Things like cooked corns, kidney beans, lima beans, lentils, peas, parsnips, popcorn, sunflower seeds, and celery root. Um, those are all vegetables, but they have more than 12% carb content if you look at the kind of nutrients in it. So those will be things that and all, be kind of... Everything I'm noticing from this list too is a much more fibrous type of you know, grain or, or plant. Exactly. Yeah. So all of this is going to be much better than 98% of the carbs, yeah. you know, or grains that we eat in a typical day in a standard American diet. Absolutely. So these are the healthiest of that group because they're higher in fiber, because they have a more muted blood sugar impact, because, because they're relatively higher in protein or some combination of those things to blunt what we're really trying to blunt among, we're trying to maximize nutrient content Right, that's one hand, and the other thing is you're trying to blunt this like sugar or carb roller coaster as right. well. Right, this, 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 this is a key, th yeah, this a key is, part of that. Th that was the way I was, you know, in my brief study of 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 diet that I still, you know, use is is basically that fiber basically is becomes a barrier to how quickly that blood that that that. that that sugar can be broken down. That car any any carb is is a, can be broken down into a sugar, um, but that 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 slows the the rate of insulin response to that sugar. Is that kind of the way it works? Yeah, yeah, very very well said. Yeah, absolutely true. And that's why if you find like sugar cane naturally, like you know, you find sugar cane, it's like over eighty percent fiber, right? Yeah. If you actually get the pure sugar cane, so there is a little bit of sweetness in there, but there's so much fiber in the yeah. the whole food plus the B vitamins, plus the zinc, plus the manganese, all of which help balance blood sugar. So in nature, 
as a whole food, you find it exactly how you're describing, Jeremy, which is rich in fiber and rich in the nutrients that blunt that blood sugar response to help give you the, the benefit of the energy without that kind of roller coaster. And, and and the one thing that no one had really told me was that insulin is a storage hormone. Like it's 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 yeah. it's, it's its job, right? I mean, we, we we it's a it's an old mechanism to make sure that we had this any any excess you know, carbohydrate, calorie that we're putting into our body, that it would go into storage. But you know, the, the, the challenge always is, and the, the way what I try to get people to when I was when I was doing this work to think about is, is that it, that that means that's energy to put it into storage. And that's that means more energy also to get it back out of storage. If we're overeating by a certain amount, that that those that the, the bank account just keeps getting <laughs> more and yeah. more depleted. Exactly. And by storage, you're basically talking about storing fat in the body. We're yeah. talking about that's how we store it. I mean, yeah. that's what insulin does is we're storing it as fat. And oh, by the way, the more insulin we reduce, the harder the pancreas has to work. Mm. Eventually, as that gets tired, injured, aged, eventually that, that pancreas working too hard is meaning too many of those sugar roller coasters is a risk factor or leads to type 2 diabetes. Uh. And oh, by the way, you can look at excessive insulin production Right. You can measure fasting insulin. Mm -hmm. So that's a blood test you can order. Or you can ask your doctor to order. So the reference range typically goes up to about 25 units of insulin. How much is normal? Right. We don't want to be normal. We want to be optimal. So yeah. an optimal number is under five. That's kind of what I'm looking for on a fasting insulin, which is basically how hard is the pancreas working at rest yeah. to make insulin. But elevated insulin production, even with normal blood sugar, can be a risk factor for cancer and cardiovascular disease in and of itself because it can lead to atherosclerosis yeah. of the artery. So even with blood sugar normal, you know, we got, you know, you got the temperatures fine in your house, but how hard your HVAC system has yes. to work to keep that's it there. A great way to and that's it. what insulin's venturing. So, so that's, I mean, th that feels like a very simple way to think about, you know, breaking down good carbohydrates versus, you know, the, the ones that can be harmful to us. And and then, are, what what other what what other foods then are are you know potentially inflammatory? And and in, and in what ways are they sort of you know affecting the body? That's the other thing I'm curious about. Good. So I'll give you the um, so we'll give you the rest of the list of those inflammatory foods. So we have a list of kind of fifteen. Um, they come from a few different places, but um, this list is from um, you know put together by a great mentor of mine named Stuart White. So foremost common are soy, gluten, corn, and milk. Those are, those you'll find anywhere, yeah. right? So that's what we kind of talked about there. Next four, peanuts, beef, tomato, and chocolate. Mm. That's kind of your next four. Then the other common ones, so kind of your final category, rice, nuts, sesame, peas, eggs, sugar, coffee, right? And these, so, and typically, you know, how does, so that's, those are the foods. So. The challenge I give to my patients is um, who want to work on this inflammation, want to experiment, is to cut all of those out, all 15 of them out for five days mm -hmm. and just see how you feel yeah. and just kind of see what you notice. And then if you feel better, then what we do is slowly reintroduce them starting at the bottom up, so starting with the coffee, sugar, eggs, and just kind of notice how you feel with each one of the ones you don't feel good, kind of cross out and stay off them. And then once you handle well, we kind of put them back in. So what sort of thing can someone notice? Well, um, a whole bunch of stuff. I'll give you, so I'll give you, I'll answer that question by saying, when might this be helpful for somebody? If somebody has headaches, if someone has chronic low back pain, if someone has chronic knee pain, if someone's really bloated in their stomach, mm -hmm. if someone has chronic joint pain, 
anytime there's signs, if someone's chronically sick, fatigued, tired, any sign, those are all can be signs or connected to chronic inflammation in the body. And all of those are a great, in, a great sign, a great opportunity, a great invitation to experiment to see if some of those may be a part of it. And almost always people will feel better on it. And then it becomes finding which, the, which ones are the right ones. And then the hard work is living it, right? <laughs> right doing it. Um, and, you know, so the more sick someone is, the more motivated they are to the health, the easier you can find compliance on that. Yeah. Is, is there, is there a specific, I'm just curious about, about what, what oh. kind of, what kind of inflammatory processes this, this sure. tends to, you know, trigger? Sure. Yeah. Let's talk about a couple of them. That's a really good question. So gluten, um, can manifest in a whole bunch of different things, but it's been connected to autoimmune disease of the thyroid, among mm, others. So okay. that's a that's a that's a key one to stay away from there. So that would be specifically high blood pressure um, can be another one. Uh, Dr. White talks a lot about gluten underlying chronic blood pressure or chronic high blood pressure. Something to check. Corn can be connected to neurological issues. Think brain, you know, seizures in the extreme, but any kind of brain neurological issues. Milk. A lot of times, what I've seen with that has been. Um, one of two things in the gut, so either constipation or diarrhea, so some kind of changes there in the gut, mm-hmm. and then chronic asthma, allergies. Um, think kids with chronic ear infections. That would be a really common one to see there. Um, but those are some, some common things you'll see with that one. Um, tomato, kind of big, bigger picture, fits into what's called the nightshade yep. vegetables. Yep. And those kind of you, see, you talk a lot about with joint pain. It's kind of the main things you'll see those nightshades show up. Um, some of the other ones can be a little more varied, but those are some kind of big picture touchstones for some of those and kind of how they show or some ideas of how they can show up and manifest uh, for, for, for someone. And and what, what I've noticed just from sort of tracking, you know, over a long period of time is that, you know, there are, there are obviously some kids who have a lot of food sensitivities. And I think yeah, that yeah, number yeah. is growing for probably a number of different reasons. Uh, environmental factors, you know, the, the state of the, the world factors, <laughs> and yeah. and that kind of stuff. But um, because because of autonomic function and and maybe the way sure. that their their body is processing. Um, do, by the way, do you, do you think that was 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 that a play in in your childhood stuff? You know, probably it's something. You know, it's, it's a hard variable control for. It, it is. Right? I know. It's but, hard to know but, but, exactly. But, but, but certainly I think that that is, you know, I think there was some level of, you know, just stress. I was feeling like a background unconscious. Yeah. I had a great childhood. I had yeah. great parents. I did well in school. But I think there was something there driving the body. And yeah. it might have been just my own drive, but it, it uh, bordered on burnout a little bit for my body. So I think that's mm. part of it. Yeah. And then I'll add one other thing to um, that list of autonomic stressors and, and the cause of these food allergies you know, can be, you know, the increased childhood vaccinations. You can mm. definitely see increased allergies with that. You know, the idea of, you know, anaphylaxis from peanuts, for example, didn't exist, you know, okay. nearly at the scale it did now 10, 20, 30 years ago. So some of that is you can look at which of those foods are in a vaccine. It's egg, eggs oh, are in I there. See, what's happening with a vaccine is you're, you're injecting a protein directly into the blood. Yeah. This isn't a commentary on the benefits or liabilities of vaccine. That's yeah. another conversation. But you're certainly injecting a protein directly into the blood. And what happens is it's bypassing the normal process of digestion. Yeah. So normally you'd eat an egg and it'd break down into component parts of right. amino acids. When you inject it directly into the bloodstream, 
it's not broken down and the body says, hey, this shouldn't be here, and it'll start to sensitize an allergic reaction to some of those foods that end up in some of those vaccines or anything that gets dire- injected directly into so the that's blood. A, that, so that's, that that's a much another. broader conversation, which could be about exactly. quality, you know, how, how, administ- how it's administered, all sorts of things, right? But, yeah, but, but ingredients the, but, and all sorts of things. Yeah, but, the, but yeah. That, that, is, that is a factor. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, the thing I've, I, I noticed too is that like, you know, kids can get away with a lot of these things oftentimes, sometimes they struggle with them at, at, in their younger years and then they can, they can tolerate a little bit yeah. more, but then they tend to come back as, as they get older. Yes. And, and what I've seen is that most people just struggle with the, uh, the you know, the dairy and, and gluten intolerances become pretty clear I, from, from what I've seen in my practice somewhere around 40. Like they just, it seems yeah. to be like, that seems to be a real turning point for a lot of people. Like yeah. you can't eat like a kid anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, it's interesting. It's a different name for each person with, with dairy. One of the things that's interesting is our ability to digest milk drops about 90% sometime between the age two and five. So okay. if you think of a, oh. a newborn, right, we have the ability to digest milk because we're drinking mother's milk, yeah. right? And that's kind of the way we were evolutionarily designed to come up and race. And then there's a weaning process and we see that in, in our ability to digest milk. Yeah. Um, so we see that. And I think, you know, as we age, that it's that resiliency the body's losing. Because yeah. I think, you know, are those foods, so there's a couple things, but are those foods, like is glyphosate a, probably a poison at any age? Yeah. yeah. Are we a lot more resilient when we're young? Yeah. yeah, ask anyone who goes out for a run at age 40 compared to age 20 and ask them how right. they feel exactly. right the next day or something exactly. like that. And then, and, it, and then earlier, you, one other thing I wanted to touch on is you brought up the idea of kids with a lot of chronic food allergy yeah. issues. Yeah. And, you know, I think one part of the process is to avoid the foods that are triggering the allergies, right? We don't want to put the kid into an, the child into an inflammatory state unnecessarily or without reason. But I think there's more to it than just avoiding those foods for the rest of the life. I think we can also do a lot. Let's see what we can do lifestyle-wise to calm down the autonomic nervous system, mm-hmm. right? And that's where your yeah. work would be quite yeah. beneficial. Yeah. There's work we can do to optimize digestive function. There's work we could use you know, to, to support the whole body. Maybe we're looking at liver. Maybe we're looking at immune support. Maybe we're looking at some kind of pathogen like a bacteria or parasite in the gut. So what can we do to focus on the health of the whole to help them be regain as much of their former resilience as they can. Yeah. And you know, so somebody can have a piece of pizza once every four months and it's not the end of the world. It may not be the best healthier food, but you know, we're not about optimal diet. I don't think is about perfection, you know, cause a hundred years ago or 120 years ago, the average American ate between three and five pounds of sugar a year. Now it's 150 to 180 pounds. Yeah, that's of sugar. amazing. It's not, yeah. So yeah, it's a half pound a day. And that means if you don't eat any sugar today, somebody else is eating a full pound, right? Because <laughs> it's, right. it's an average, right? So it's an incredible, incredible amount. And, you know, to go back to that sugar cane analogy, if you were going to eat an equivalent amount, a half pound of sugar out of raw sugar cane, you'd have to chew through at least 200, somewhere between 200 and 300 grams of fiber a day, which the average, the, the recommended amount of fiber, to go back to your point earlier, is 20 to 25 grams generally. Mm-hmm. So you'd be eating you know, somewhere between, you know, a week and 10 days worth of fiber. So you couldn't get through all that because you'd spend most of your time in the bathroom, right? right? Just processing through that fiber. So it'd be almost impossible to do that. But to go back to the sugar consumption, it's less about optimal or perfection. It's more about, you know, gradient betterment. And, you know, we have, you have something once in a while that's not perfect. 
smile, enjoy it, give thanks, enjoy the moment, and then, you know, make sure that cheat day doesn't become a cheat week or cheat month right. or cheat year. Right. right. And then we get back to putting doing the putting in our positive principles. Now, occasionally some people do need to be perfect. There are certain conditions where that's less true. But I think when somebody gets healthy, it's more about enjoy life, do it with a smile, do it with love, and less less coming at diet from communicating with the body instead of from a state of fear and anxiety. If I have one thing, bad things are going to happen. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, so in terms of optimizing, since since we're we're going there, you you have this yeah. this concept of an oil change. Um, yeah. Tell 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 me tell me how you sort of you know direct that kind of thing. What we're talking about with with oils and and what needs changing. Yeah, good. Yeah, so oil change. Most people think of their car, and so that's what makes it funny when I tell them they need oil change as <laughs> right. well. So this is less about going to the mechanic and uh, and, and draining out the oils of your body and putting some other ones in, but more about what kind. You know, less about a procedure and more about a process of diet. So what are we putting in the body, right? And what we're staying away from is those inflammatory oils. Think canola oil, you know, which AKA rapeseed oil. Think of um, peanut oil. Think of vegetable oil. Those are the things. Think of, you know, conventionally raised beef, grass, uh, grain-fed beef, you know, you know, grain-fed chicken, right? We want, and what are the optimal oils we want to substitute in? Well, we want to focus more on those anti-inflammatory oils as a general rule, which are the omega-3s. So our best sources of those are going to be fish and algae. Mm-hmm. The fish sources are abbreviated SMASH, S-M-A-S-H, which stands for salmon, mackerel, anchovy, sardines, and herring. So those are great sources there. Certainly people will think of olive oil, avocados mm-hmm. as great olives, as whole food source of oil. Um, sesame seed oil can be really good. Um, so that could be sesames, that, uh, sesame seeds. That could be tahini. That could be, um, you know, baba ganoush or uh, hummus as well. Mm-hmm. Um, also, just as a side note, really good for blood building, really good for immune function, really good for platelet production. So if anybody has, you know, looking at wanting to boost their immune system or build up, you know, low platelet levels, that could be something. Walnut oils can be good. And we're really staying away from a lot of those, like I mentioned, those, those pr- more processed oils. And certainly the other group of oils we want to stay away from would be the partially hydrogenated oils. And that would think of anything Think of fried at fast food. Any kind of oil that can sit there for two days isn't one you want to stay away from. Coconut oil would be another one on the good side. Yeah. Oh, okay. And 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 I, I don't know the the full chemistry behind this, but maybe you maybe you yeah. can explain this a little bit. But I've seen you know diagrams of what happens when you add these hydrogen bonds to these these open oxygen um, yeah molecules. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So just a, just a short explanation of it. You can have um, so you said a saturated fat is a fat that has hydrogen at all its available places, meaning no double bonds. Got like some of you might be having flashbacks to high school chemistry and it's so <laughs> hang with us. We're, we're, we'll get through this quickly. But so that's what a saturated fat is. A monounsaturated fat like olive oil will have one double bond or basically one double bond instead of a hydrogen. And then polyunsaturated fats will have multiple double bonds. So be missing hydrogens. So what partially hydrogenated oils are is they artificially 
add more hydrogens to them, and it changes the shape or configuration of the oil to be something that's less usable for the body or toxic. And they're also called trans fats because in chemistry there's two configurations called cis and trans, but it basically puts it in the trans configuration, T-R-A-N-S. Um, so that's, a, you know, that's kind of a basic level chemistry behind it. What it matters is the oils, the reason they do it, partially hydrogenate them, is because they can sit and store longer. So McDonald's... At higher temperatures too, right? Higher temperatures and, and they're good longer, so they don't have to change out their oils quite as much. Yeah. So what it means is in your body, they stay stiff and they stay there longer, and which isn't exactly what we want. We want a nice fluidity to those cells and the cell membrane. Yeah. And, and is, there, is there stuff that for, for things that are monounsaturated, does that mean that it can sort of attach to something in a good way? Is that is that part of the process yeah, or is it? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's that's a good question. Uh, you're you're pushing the limits of my knowledge of, uh, <laughs> of nutritional biochemistry right now. Sorry, um, this is just how my brain works. It, no, no, no. Yeah, no, that's a great question. My my recollection of it is it stays there and it changes. It just gives it a certain fluidity to it. Okay. With the monounsaturated fat that you don't have a fully saturated fat, but. Um, I'm going way back in the in the in the way back machine on that one. My, so that's my, my guess though. is it, it it increases usability, and and I know that oh. you know with that I've just worked with like a lot of athletes over the years, and I know that one of the things they big changes they do to their diets is they actually increase the the good fats because Absolutely. they're so calorie dense, and they're and they're I think they're more immediately available if I'm not mistaken. So there's certain ones. So in general, certain I think ones? of sugar giving. Certain, yeah, there's certain uh, medium chain fatty acids. Some of them are in um, like coconut oil. And what happens is they actually bypass the traditional digestive process. Instead mm. of going to the liver first, they jump right in the bloodstream and they can be used within 30 minutes. In wow. general, fat is an energy source that can last between four hours and eight hours. So it's okay. our slow burning. It's our big logs on the fire. Okay. Carbs are a piece of paper and kindling. Gotcha. And proteins are medium sized logs. But there are certain fats that bypass that and go straight into the blood and can be usable. And you can find those, there's a mix of things in coconut oil, but coconut oil is one of the ones that higher in those kind of faster acting fats. Okay. Um, so, so with, with all of, all of this, I'm, I'm curious um, about the, the blood chemistry part of this and, and how, how you, and we're getting deep into chemistry, sorry, <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah. In, in terms of, in terms of, you know, how you, how you take the information that you get from from labs and help people make adjustments. Obviously, we're going to cut out the inflammatory foods, um, but yep. then, but then I, I imagine you know, once once we get the blood work and we do some of that work, that's when that's when there's a fair amount of trial and error in terms of uh, as we started this conversation. There's there's no there are no two diets that are the same. So it's a matter of like sometimes eliminating figuring out what to add back in, using some science from the blood work to kind of figure out where we need to go to to start optimizing, you know, the, this person's health and lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then we, we buttress that or support that in our office with, um, you know, something called kinesiology or muscle testing, okay. which helps us give an individual read on how the certain foods in the body and the muscles and the nervous system react to certain foods and allergens as well. So there's a couple different layers, but for, for people we work with over the phone, we work on some of those other things. But I give you, uh, yeah, so we, we'll use the the blood work to tell us certain things. So you would be helpful to go over a couple examples of like sure, that'd be blood great. Yeah. and kind of what we look at. Great. So one, um, so there's a couple real common 
standard blood work, if you go into your doctor, they'll do what's called a CBC or complete blood count. That means they're looking at your red blood cells, hemoglobin, hematocrit. Just quite simply, that's the oxygen-carrying cells of your blood, blood system, as mm-hmm. a general rule. There's your white blood cells, which is your immune system. right? And then they'll, then they'll run after the CBC, which includes those two parts, or complete blood count. They'll do a comprehensive metabolic panel, roughly looking at blood sugar, liver, kidneys. Uh, and then they'll sometimes run a lipid panel or often run a lipid panel, which is basically cholesterol numbers, triglycerides, H, good, bad cholesterol. So that's kind of the typical standard minimal blood work. Okay. So I'll stick to what we can learn from that. that yeah, yeah, that sounds good. If, if any of your listeners have some of that blood work at home or you want to pull it out, you know, we can look at a couple of things. So one is just quite simply, we can look at our sodium level and our chloride level. So sodium is just what it thinks. So that'll be on your complete metabolic panel. Those are electrolytes or minerals in the blood. Mm-hmm. But I think optimal, um, so there'll be reference ranges, lab ranges for all of those. And lab ranges are basically set for like, you know, something like 95% of all people being normal, which means two and a half percent of people are low and two and a half percent of people are high. But if you're the average, if you're somewhere in the middle, 95% of all the sick people who do blood work, you know, that's a slight exaggeration because they're not all sick, but most are. It may not be the optimal. Right, it may not be right. the optimal. Yeah, level. yeah. Okay. So good. So let's talk about sodium. So for sodium, where I like that to end up is kind of 143 or a little a little higher in the normal range, but on the upper end of it. And if that's low, on the low side, we may want to add a little more sea salt to the diet. So sea salt, um, like a Himalayan salt. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a Celtic sea salt, um, like a Redmond sea salt. Those are some great ones. And we want somewhere between one and two teaspoons a day as a general rule. Um, it, and now the question I often get at this point, but I thought salt raises my blood pressure. Right. right. Is the question you often get. And there's, this is where we need to talk about the difference between traditional salt, table salt, and sea salt. Right. So sea salt um, has somewhere between 20, 30, 40, and up to 70 different minerals in it because mm. it's literally de- dehydrated yeah. seawater, yep. right? Where sodium chloride or table salt is made chemically in a lab that has two minerals, sodium yeah. and chloride. So the difference is um, we need 70 different minerals. And we, if we just take two, and we might've talked about this last time, but we talked minerals in the body are a lot like an orchestra. Yeah. If you just have a bunch of tuba and there's a bunch of drums, you're not going to have an orchestra. <laughs> right. You'll have something, Yeah. yeah. right? But it's easy, to th- it's easy to throw the whole thing out of balance, especially if you're not eating the vegetables that are really rich in the other ones to balance it out. So, um, so sea salt, if it's low, one to two teaspoons a day as a general rule, there's a small percentage of people that are very salt sensitive. So it will raise their blood pressure, even if it's sea salt, yeah. but it's far less than 1% of people. So I just want to put that up put that proviso out there. And the more you sweat, the more active you are, the more you might even go up a little higher than that. But uh, that's kind of recommendation. And then that can be on food, that could be in water, that could be cooked, uncooked, doesn't matter. So same thing if your chloride level is low, that could be um, a reason to add a little bit more sea salt as well. 103 is the number I like, 103 or on the higher end of the normal range Okay, would be good there. The other reason sodium can be low is stress. Mm. or adrenals, yeah. or the autonomic. So this would be a reason to call up Jeremy yep, yep. <laughs> and talk to him about that because that one of the one of the functions of the adrenals is to release something called aldosterone, which yeah. holds on to sodium in the body. Um, so that's something to look at there. Uh, and if it's too high, it could be a whole bunch of different things. Um, but the simplest thing it could be is some dehydration. Okay. So on the day you did your blood work, did you drink some water? Are we getting half our body weight in ounces? 
as a general rule, more if you're working out, more if you're sweating, more if you're working outside, or are we doing something that's causing us to be dehydrated? And, you know, lifestyle-wise, caffeine can dehydrate us, so every ounce of coffee or, or even caffeinated tea, you need an extra ounce of water to balance it out roughly. Okay. And um, sugar can dehydrate us. So we can go through a few more if you want, but that's an example of how you can use the blood work to give us some information about that. Interesting. I, I have one quick question uh, back to the yeah. uh, sea salt. Be, I, I know I, iodine was added to salt during Correct. the during the depression because there was all sorts of problems with the thyroid. Was the thyroid issues that were kind of popping yeah. up, right? Um, so, so, so is is that is that in sea salt? Is is there natural so, iodine or? So, so trace, yeah, trace amounts, but not nearly the amount you'll get in ionized salt. Okay. So yeah, so so when you think iodine, it's right to think thyroid. That's where we think about it the most. So T3 and T4 mm -hmm. are the two main thyroid hormones. So T3 is the more active form, and T3 T4 is the less active form. And T3 gets its name because it's a, a, a T for tyrosine, which is amino acid, and three meaning it has three iodine molecules. Okay. And T4 has four iodine molecules. So very important for thyroid function. Also, iodine is the number one um, preventable cause of like mental retardation in the world. It affects over a billion people. Is that right? Iodine deficiency. So I say that to say iodine is very important for brain function as well. So and, and for pregnant mothers, I, I'm assuming? For sure, yep, absolutely. So yeah, for pregnant mothers, you want to make sure they have iodine and you'd certainly want to make sure they have some good omega-3s or those healthy oils that are rich, you know, basically and, and interesting with mothers, so there's, you know, omega-3s, those are those fish oils we talked about, abbreviated yeah. SMASH. Um, but what they've shown is when you supplement a pregnant mother with fish oils, and almost, and most of the time, all of the oils go to the baby. So the mom, wow. unless the mom has a, a rich enough store, mm -hmm. you know, there's such a need for it, especially with that nervous system developing that'll go to the baby. And I don't, my, my suspicion is part of that could be connected to that idea of baby brain or pregnancy brain or some of that process as the mom um, during pregnancy and during lactation is such an important source of the baby to give them those fats they need for that yeah. developing nervous system that's, that's developing so rapidly. So omega-3 consumption can be good. Um, so that's um, – and the, the sad part is they sometimes warn mom about fish. Um, for the mercury content or aluminum content when mm -hmm. they're pregnant. So not to minimize that risk, but the risk of an omega-3 deficiency, I think is orders of magnitude yeah, more yeah. important and more substantial than the risk of, um, than the risk of contamination from fish. Yeah. Um, so don't want to minimize it, but orders of magnitude difference um, versus the importance of those fats for developing nervous system. Wow. Okay. So, um, so, so and, go all the way back. And, yeah, and any, yeah, any other ex examples of, of this? Yeah, so to go all the way back, you're right about iodine, and you do need to keep an eye on that. You may not get it just from sea salt. You may need to look at some other food-rich sources of that. Seafood would be great. Um, seaweed would be great. Or yes, you may need yeah. to do enough supplement for it if you're doing that. Um, so, yeah, another example for that, um, let's see. Um, so yeah, we'll go for we'll go for cholesterol because um, that's a real common one. That yeah, I, I was going to ask you about or, that actually. Okay, great. So let's go there. So this is always amazes people. I don't care too much about total cholesterol. It's it's kind of a, in my opinion, a great number to if you want to prescribe drugs. Mm -hmm. It's not a great number if you want to predict health. So one of the my favorite stats on that is fifty percent of people that have a heart attack have normal levels of cholesterol. Okay. So so 
it's, it's, it's a very easy number to look at and say, you know, hey, we want that lower. We've got a, the drugs are phenomenal at lowering cholesterol. I just don't think it really quantifies heart disease risk as yeah. well as it possibly can. So um, what do I like better? I like looking at HDL, which stands for high-density lipoprotein. That's what's so-called good cholesterol. Most labs like that above 35. Okay. I think that's good. Optimal is 65 or above. Okay. There's some foods to optimize HDL or exercise, quit smoking, and omega-3 fats. There's some great ways to do that naturally. Okay. Um, the, other, the other number that I, I care about more than cholesterol is your triglycerides, yeah. which are blood fats. Yeah. So t- typical lab range is under 150 or, or under 149, but roughly that 150 is where they consider the cutoff. The optimal for me is 70 to 100. So if it's, if it's over 100, then actually the way we want to lower blood fats it's actually by cutting down refined carbohydrates, mm. sugar, breads, pasta, carbs. Because what will happen is to go back to your point earlier about insulin being a storage hormone, the body will store insulin as fat. Right. Gotcha. Okay. So, and the, the other part I want to say about triglycerides, as I said, it's 70 to 100, which means in my mind, it can be too low. Mm. So if anyone's below 70 on your triglycerides, I, I'm, I'm generally okay with it. But I always have the conversation is, are you getting enough healthy fats? Eggs, grass-fed beef, chicken, olives, olive oil, avocado, right? Are we getting those good quality oils, good, you know, good quality fish oil and omega-3 consumption? I want to really dive into the healthy oils and make sure we're getting enough. I'm, I can be okay on the lower side of that, but I really want to dig into diet and make sure we're getting enough there. Do you, do you also usually see... Um, at- a, a difference in LDL or HDL if someone's low in triglycerides or high in triglycerides one way or another? Yeah, so that's an interesting point. So high triglycerides, HDL, HDL, uh, sorry, LDL, if they're high in triglycerides, which means their blood fats are high, often the cholesterol will go high as well. Okay. And often the LDL will go high and the HDL can tend to be on the lower side. The low so side, the LDL yeah. is the bad cholesterol and HDL is a good cholesterol. So that would be, that would be the general pattern I would see around yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I'll say if anybody's looking at your blood work on that, you can change that quickly. I've seen cholesterol level, total cholesterol drop 30, 40, 50, 70 points in as little as three weeks with some diet change. Yeah. And I see that more often than I don't. So if you want if you want to know, does you know your doctor will say take a drug, so that's that's your choice. That's you know, that's the conversation to have with your doctor. But if they tell you diet doesn't can't change that, um, I've got blood work to say that's not true. So you, there's a lot you can do naturally if that's the route you want to go. So I, I like to tell people that just so they know there's an option yeah. and they can evaluate what's right for them around that. And and, I, and I'll, I'll add just because I know about this from hearing it often uh, with, with doctor friends of mine, but with what you're saying about, you know, the the triglycerides being affected by these, you know, processed carbohydrates, alcohol also fits into that category, correct? Forever. That that yeah, a, a lot of times they'll 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 say like you know what's your you know what's your diet like and how much do you drink is usually a pretty good indicator of what your triglyceride and LDL levels will be correct. That's that's a really good point because and that's true for two reasons what you just said so it's really important to bring that up. Um, one is because alcohol as we detoxify it turns into a sugar or a carbohydrate, and the second reason is because alcohol tends to poison the liver. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or injure the liver. And the other thing you'll see elevated uh, good cholesterol 
or elevated bad cholesterol or elevated triglycerides with is a congested liver. And in fact, um, they now have a name for this and it's, well, it used to be called, you know, steatosis, which is basically fatty liver. Yeah. And the only way you used to be able to get that was from alcoholism. Now they've got, you know, the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic steatohepatosis, which is basically, um, which is basically non-alcohol. It's basically the, the liver of an alcoholic without drinking. And you can do that from sugar, from carbohydrates and specifically, and especially I from think I've read fructose, that. Yeah. 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 Which is the fruit sugar as well. So absolutely. That's a really good point to bring up. So, so, that, so high fructose, high fructose corn syrup I, I've read is, is almost on par with, you know, the same, same amount of, uh, health detriment as alcohol. Yeah. You know what? I actually, um, I probably about maybe about 10 years ago or so I wrote an article and I said, fructose is going to be the next gluten in terms of something that people want to stay away from. And I don't think it ever quite got to that level, but I think this awareness of fructose and the effect it does in his body has grown tremendously over the last decade. I think that's a really important point. If anybody really wants to deep dive on that, there's a gentleman named Robert Lustig and I think he's MD PhD at um, somewhere, but he wrote, he did, he's done a lot of work around sugar and its effect on the body and specifically the effect of fructose and, and how it contributes to a fatty liver, how it contributes to, you know, basically this metabolic syndrome, which could be elevated cholesterol, elevated blood pressure, elevated weight, poor blood sugar handling. Um, so it's a, there's a lot to go into around that, but yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a key point. And just if somebody wants a number, um, you know, kind of, Fructose is natural sugar and fruit. Stay away from all fruit juices would kind of be a general rule. If somebody has blood sugar issues, they're probably better off staying away from fruit. Yeah. Um, if somebody doesn't, and then you know they can do fruit kind of in moderation, um, but kind of 25 grams of fructose would be a number to stay under. Yeah. Um, and that can be, you know, an apple might be eight or nine. Right, and, and, and get something with fiber content to it, a skin or something that actually helps to slow Perfect. that, right? Perfect. Yeah. So an apple a day is fine. Eight apples a day, and that's all you eat. That could be a little more problematic. <laughs> right. So, so, so to, to to maybe wrap up a little bit, I, we, we've gone through a lot of different kinds of you know ways of looking at the way you know diet can can affect us both positive and, and negatively. Is 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 there anything just in terms of something that we can if if we can generalize at all? Yeah. A, a, a way of, of maybe, especially it being earlier in the year and people are, seem to be focusing on this a lot right now, is, is there anything that we can do that we know almost immediately? I, I think the oil change is, is clearly one of them, right? Um, yeah. and is, is there anything else that you recommend when people first you know, start to, to try to get a, a, something to, to clear through the system or to reset or anything like that? So I'll give you I'll give you three. The first one, the oil change. I think that's a great suggestion. Yeah. So cutting out the sea oil, focus on the quality oils. Um, two, I you know go back to those four most common inflammatory foods. If we don't do the whole list, yeah. we do the four most common plus sugar. So dairy, corn, uh, gluten, and soy. Cut those out along with sugar. That would make a tremendous tremendous difference there. And if I did number three, I would just kind of focus on every time you put some food on your plate. Let's focus on three things. Let's focus on having a healthy fat. Let's have a focus on a healthy source of protein. And let's focus on a vegetable, mm-hmm. right? I think if we do those three things, we're in a really good place. So and now the healthy fat 
and the protein can be the same. Like we could eat salmon that could have both. An egg might have both, mm-hmm. right? And a vegetable. So it doesn't necessarily, an avocado could be, you know, fill a couple of those roles, right. right? So it doesn't have to be separate things. But if you just think about each meal, do I have something that would qualify as a quality fat, something that qualifies a, as a healthy protein and something that qualifies as a vegetable, right? And organic, you know, grass-fed, high quality, you know, the best quality of those things we can. But if you just have those three things on your plate each time, you're ahead of 80 90% of people. When, when, when it comes to, to, um, to veg, do you, as, are, are there people that you find have a, have a harder time um, eating raw? I mean, I, I know I, ideally yeah. we should eat as close to raw as possible, but in the, like in the Northern climates for us, you know, it's, it's, it's hard yeah. to, it's hard to get vegetables in raw. I think in the, in the winter months, you also don't want to overcook them, but I, I, do you see people that can, like I run warmer. I feel like I can, I can get away with salad in the winter. It doesn't yep. bother me that much, but you know, I know other people that, that can't do that as well, or they, or it ends up, you know, sort of causing some GI issues. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you'll commonly see women, hear women describe it as I feel like I'm two months pregnant or three months pregnant. <laughs> right, exactly. It could, it could be some gas. It could be some bloating. It should be some indigestion. So absolutely. You can see that to me, that's a sign of, the digestive system not working quite as well as it could. Okay. That could be um, like a dysbiotic gut. So there could be something, you know, we could look at. So you look at history of antibiotic use, history of parasite infection, mm-hmm. known or unknown trips outside the country. So you'd want to kind of trace it back gotcha. and kind of play detective. Okay. okay. In the meantime, there are some nutrients. So I, I, I think you're totally right on the raw. There are some nutrients that are slightly better digested, um, cooked, but those are more the exception than the rule. Okay. So I think raw lightly steamed, lightly sauteed are really great places to live for okay. vegetables. Yeah. Um, but, and then if that's provoking symptoms on someone, which can be quite common, not normal, but quite common, we do want to kind of dive in and kind of look at that. And the first place I'm suspecting is kind of gut health. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Jeff. I, I, feel, I already feel like now I have a little bit of a, I mean, there's some things I want to I want to shift for myself. As much as I feel like I know, I you know, especially yeah. coming coming out of holidays and it being winter, you know, it's like there are some things that I, I am trying to kind of tune tune myself up. And I also feel like I I need to I need to focus. It, I feel like I can get away with a few more cheats in the summer somehow. You know, with the sun and everything. In the winter, I feel like I got to be a little tighter. So, thank you. Well, awesome. Thanks for your great question. It is it's a constant evolution. It's a constant learning for ourselves because. You know, you brought up genetics and connected to diet briefly earlier. Um, but the other part of that is, is epigenetics, right? Which is how our yeah. lifestyle changes our genes, yeah. right? And, and I think that's an incredible factor. So things like weather, things like stress, things like activity level, things like our nutrients actually can affect the genes, which can then affect our diet. So yeah. there's, it's basically a constant evolution. And that's why there's no one perfect diet for anyone. And there's no one perfect diet for us at all times, right? That will kind of evolve. But so I hope what we communicated through this, through this, um, through the podcast today and what your listeners will take away are some of the principles they can use to help them tap into that for themselves and to give themselves some, some tools to experiment, to play, to learn and to heal. For sure. It's, we're all going to fall off the, the, you know, track once in a while. And I feel like this just kind of, it brings us everything back to center again. So Thank you. I, I appreciate your experience and your and your brain. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, th- well, thank you. I appreciate appreciate being here and always enjoy the conversation and the questions. Thanks, Jeff.
Dr. Jeff Kirpin, folks. Making good choices in our diets can sometimes feel overwhelming. And while there's no one-size-fits-all diet for everyone, there are some basic rules you can follow. Getting organized is almost always the first step, and Jeff's suggestion about cutting out and throwing out foods that are known to cause inflammation is an easy first step. The oil change that Jeff mentions is also a great second step. If you're looking for a reference for what we discussed here, check out Jeff's book, Timeless Youth. Uh, I'll have it in the show notes here as well. If you're looking to get yourself organized for improving your health. It's also now available in Spanish if that's a better version for you and your family. Let me know what you thought of this topic in conversation. And if you're still feeling confused about any of what we covered here and have questions for me or Jeff, you can reach out to me by email anytime, jeremy at highway2.health. Let me know what you thought of this topic in conversation. And if you're still feeling confused about any of what we covered here and have questions for me or Jeff, you can reach me anytime by email, jeremy at highway2.health. And we'll be sure to get back to you with a response. It's our goal to see you succeed in making these positive changes for yourself. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our author shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.